0: following audio is for Emanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emanuel is available at our website, www.myemanuel.net. This morning I want to ask you to join me in turning in your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter two, and uh, uh, while you're turning there, just a uh, just a quick word. I, um, if you're like me, a uh, uh, part of the worship experience that uh, is designed and created for us each week just has a way of touching my soul. And just imagine what it's like to hear firsthand testimonies of of people like blind Bartimaeus, and uh, think what it would be like to see Jesus and been touched by him and and uh, being blind and being able to see. But that's really what we see each and every week when we see changed lives of those of us who spiritually once were blind and now we see, and baptism's an evidence of that. And so what a beautiful way to begin and experience worship this morning. And now we turn our attention to the Scriptures. We have uh, given our praise and our worship to the Lord, and now we ask God to speak to us. And what we're doing... In the book of Hebrews is a little different than the kind of preaching I've done in the past. Uh, This is a little more, it's a lot more teaching and less preaching. We're going to go concept by concept and sometimes verse by verse as we look and see what the writer has for us. Now, if you've just joined us, if you weren't here in the first couple of weeks, we've just done chapter one. and chapter one, really, the, the writer of Hebrews, and by the way, we don't know for certain who that writer is. Uh, but the writer of Hebrews is expressing to us the concept that Jesus is 100% thoroughly, completely God, and he does it in the whole chapter. But in the first three verses, we have this incredibly eloquent introduction. And this is what he says about this is what he says about the Lord, beginning in verse two. He is the Son of God, who was appointed heir of all things. He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purifications for our sins. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Those eight characteristics of who God is are so powerful that if you just believe in one of them, If you believe in any one of the eight, then you would have to say Jesus is indeed God. And also, if you believe in any one of the eight, you have to believe in all of the eight because they're conclusively. You can't be can't be part of you can't be part God. You either are completely God or you're not. Now, the Jews and the Hebrews had another problem. Uh, They also thought that Jesus maybe was an angel. They held angels in very high regard angel appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Angels appear all through the Old Testament. And they begin to think, well, Jesus maybe isn't God, but he's, a, he's an angel. And so the rest of Hebrews chapter 1 is the writer making the case that Jesus is superior to angels because he is God. And the way he makes that case is not by listing the characteristics of who God is, but by going back to the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament seven times any good hebrew believed that the old testament was the inspired unfallible inerrant word of god and so they they believe that if the word said that the scripture said it that it was true and so the writer makes his case that jesus is greater than the angels by the old testament word of god and so that's what he's done in chapter one he said over and over again Jesus is completely 100% thoroughly God. When we get to chapter 2, the writer is going to say Jesus is completely 100% thoroughly human. We're going to begin in verse 5, verse 1 through 4. I'm going to come back and look at those in the weeks to come. It's kind of a parenthetical statement. But beginning in verse 5, read along with me. Here's what the writer writes. Now, it was not to angels. Remember, he finished chapter 1 talking about Jesus is superior than angels because he's God. He says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. This is now the 8th Old Testament quotation. This is a, he's quoting David from the Psalms. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him uh, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put everything in subjection under his feet. In the second half of verse 8 now, the writer of Hebrews is going to give commentary on what we've just read. What we've just read is out of the Psalms. So whenever someone in the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit gives commentary on the Old Testament, you no longer have to wonder what does the Old Testament means, Because God tells us what it means in the second half of verse 8. Now, the phrase in putting everything in subjection to him, by using that phrase, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He's talking about Jesus. But we do see him who for a little while was lower than the angels. And he wants, he wants us to make sure that we know that he's talking about Jesus. So he says, namely, Jesus. Every now and then you'll read somebody to go, oh, it's Muhammad, it's Buddha, it's, it's Gabriel, it's Michael, it's one of the angels. No, it's Jesus. He says, namely, Jesus. And, what, and what, we, what do we see about him? Crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death And here's a phrase underlined in my Bible, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's fitting that he, and then he reminds us who God is, who Jesus is, for whom and by whom all things exist. It's fitting that he, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. A second reference to suffering. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified, Jesus is the one who sanctifies us. We are the ones who are sanctified. So we all have one source. We all have one Father. There's one way of salvation. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Another Old Testament quotation. In fact, there are are three in a row here. Here's the first one. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. And again. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children, and when he's talking about the children, he's talking about you and me, children of flesh, flesh and blood, children of Abraham, offspring of Abraham. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He's talking about flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one, who has the power of death. Now a few verses ago, back up in verse 9, he wanted us to know for a fact that he was speaking of Jesus. So here, he wants us to know for a fact he's speaking of the devil. That's the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. And what did he do? And he's going to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely, now he comes back to this idea about angels and Jesus. Surely, was not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had, to be make, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God. And to make propitiation. It's a great big theological word. It means payment. To make the payment for the sins of the people. And here's how he finishes that chapter. For because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those, us, you and me, mankind, who are being tempted. So uh, here, we have this, here we have this passage. And when we look at it all together, it's a very eloquent uh, case. And, and what the writer has done, chapter 1, Jesus is completely God. Always completely, thoroughly, 100% God. But when we get to chapter 2, he, uh, he changes this, and he says, Jesus is completely, thoroughly, 100% man. And even his argument about Jesus is greater than angels, he does a thing here. The Hebrew word is switcheroo. Some of you got that. Uh, what he does is he says, Jesus is greater than angels because he's God then in chapter 2, he says, Jesus is greater than angels because he's a man. And he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes David, who says about man and the Son of Man, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You see, you and I have a, a completely different relationship with God than angels do angels right now are above us in the sense that you and I limited by our body and our flesh we don't have the ability to just move through the spiritual realm angels do but there'll be a day when you and I move to our glorified bodies and in that day everything changes in that day we go from being lower than the angels Higher than the angels. It's referred to again down in verse, I believe it's 16, when he says, For surely it's not angels that he helps. You see that phrase? Do you know what that phrase means? It means this Jesus didn't die on the cross for angels. There's no redemption for the angels that sinned. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Why? Because you and I are made in the image of God. And so we move from being a little lower than the angels. Man, I'm speaking of man, human, to a little higher than the angels. So the writer of Hebrews says, actually, Jesus is greater than angels because he's God, in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he says, and he's greater than angels because he's human. And he makes both points. So the first thing that we see here when we read chapter 2, and we read it in totality as we've just done, is that Jesus, who is clearly God, did the unthinkable. He did the unimaginable. He did the thing which no one could ever comprehend. He became human. That's what God did. I, I, I want you to think about this, and maybe one of the best ways to think about it is in contrast to all the false religions of the world. Uh, in all the false religions of the world, the, the work of that religion is for you to work. They're always work-related. They're never grace they're always about you performing and accomplishing. And you, if you'll do enough, you can work your way up to being a God. That's how, that's how, you, that's how you get to heaven. You just you work and work and work and work, and then God rewards that, and you're given heaven. You're being, you become a God. But in Christianity, God becomes a man. It's completely different. It's completely backward than the way the world thinks. The world thinks, "Oh, I, I've got to get myself to Nirvana. I've got to, have got to continue to do uh, reincarnation until I get there." But in when it comes to God's plan of salvation, He leaves the throne of heaven. He comes to Earth. He becomes human. He's born as a baby. He's, the the Bible says there. He's human in every respect, just like you and me. And what? happens at that moment, God becomes a man and he does for humankind what we can't do for ourselves. He delivers us from our sin. Now that phrase there that he became like us in every respect, that's a that's a that's a fully doctrinal and theological statement because there's a lot of people that would like Jesus to be 100% God and 50% man. Or Or 75% God and 25% man. And so the writer of Hebrews makes it clear he's 100% God and 100% man. He's like us in every single way. And in chapter 2, he states three ways, three things that are musts if you're going to be human. How is is humanity defined? Number one, here in this chapter, by flesh and blood. Uh, The... The Latin incarnate, carnal, he, he took on flesh. And so flesh and blood. If you if you saw Jesus, you could have touched him. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a spirit. It wasn't an apparition. You could touch him. When he came up to blind Bartimaeus and put his hands on his eyes, he touched him. John, the writer of uh, the first chapter of John, says whom we've touched, whom we've handled. What else about Jesus? Well, He ate when He was hungry. He, he drank water when He was thirsty. He, he got tired and He had to sleep. He He's completely flesh and blood. And we know because He went to the cross for us that when they pounded the nails in His hands, He bled. We know that when the spear was run up underneath the ribcage, the blood and water and the... Doctors will tell us medically, the only way the blood and water run out together is the heart bursts. He was completely flesh and blood. It says here, human in every respect. The second thing that makes us human is suffering. The capacity to suffer. Uh, We live on a fallen planet. We live in a depraved world. Adam and Eve sinned. The world was perfect in the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve sinned, and they brought sin into the world, and they brought all of the suffering and the consequence of that. Before you get too mad at Adam and Eve, when you got to the age where you could choose, you chose to sin too. In fact, the problem is there's 7 billion of us on the planet, and we're all sinning. Sometimes when I sin, you're the victim of my sin. Sometimes when you sin, you're the victim. Uh, I'm the you're the victim of my well you're always the victim of my sin. Let's just leave it that way. Sometimes I'm the victim of your sin, but 7 billion people on the planet sinning. So what do we have? We have chemical weapons used in Syria this last week. That's certainly the depravity of man, isn't it? We have wars and rumors of wars. We have certain ethnic groups that want to completely annihilate and exterminate other ethnic groups. This is the sin of our lives. So we have, we have just the sin of suffering. We have the sin that goes along with the fact that doctors give us a bad medical report or the sin uh, of the suffering that goes with uh, a divorce or the suffering that goes with uh, losing a job. There's, there's suffering in this world. The last verse tells us that one of the forms of suffering is temptation. Look at verse 18 again. Because he himself has suffered when he was tempted. So suffered, the suffering is used all in chapter 2. And Jesus suffered. We, we know that, you know, when it was hot, he sweat. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat, as it were, drops of blood from the anxiety of knowing that he was going to the cross. He suffered for us. There's a third part of what it means to be human. Flesh and blood is a part of that. Suffering is a part of that. But death is a part of that, too. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Since we're all sinners, and we all recognize that, the Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus Christ also died, but his death was different than our death. Once again in verse 9, that by the suffering of death and through the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Uh, I officiate a lot of funerals. In the course of that, sometimes I'm surprised, the people are surprised, that people die. Now, uh, sometimes a person, a loved one, is sick for a long period of time, and we lose them, so that's not a surprise. The surprise comes when it's quick and it's fast. It's a, something we didn't expect, a sudden heart attack or a car wreck. And we're always talking about, we're, we're always surprised. The reality is, people die every day. People die every single day. It's a part of the human experience. But what the writer of Hebrews pulls apart for us in chapter 2 is two kinds of death. One is the the death of this physical body. You understand, right? I want you to nod your heads. I've got to preach a longer sermon if you don't already know this. Your physical body is not the real you, right? Nod your heads. You just nod your heads because you don't want me to preach longer. So this is, the Bible actually sometimes calls it a jar of clay. I like to call it rental property. It's it's not the real you. The real you indwells this body. The real you will indwell another body later. This body dies, but the real you was made immortal in the image of God to live forever. And that's the death that Jesus tasted for everyone. If you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you ask for the forgiveness of sins, the Scripture says He moves you from death death to life from darkness to light he moves you from being a spiritual orphan to being the children of god and it's in that sense that jesus then is our brother and so this is a part of that experience that he he dies the spiritual death for us let me just explain it a little bit more because i want you to get it when you know christ and you've experienced the forgiveness of sins your eternity is eternal life you've heard that phrase right it's in heaven, eternal life. If you reject Christ and you, and you don't care about him, you don't want him to be your Lord and Savior, you want to be your own master and your own boss, when the body dies, then you start eternal death. You see, you're immortal. You don't die. You go to a place called hell where you're always dying and never dead. I meet people sometimes at these same funerals that I talked about, and they say, I'm not really afraid of death, but I'm afraid of dying. Hell is a place where you're always dying and never dead. Complete separation from God. This is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is when he was separated from God. This Friday, Good Friday, is the day that we celebrate the death death of Jesus and i and we celebrate it because of his death we have eternal life we can have the forgiveness of sins but in that moment where the sky goes black and in that moment where he says my god my god why have you forsaken me it's not just a rhetoric poetic question it really happened god forsook jesus he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us he was separated from god the father by our sin that's what happened on the cross. That's what Jesus did for us. That's why he came to this earth. That's why he took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. So he's completely human. Now, we could continue to talk about what Jesus' humanity means theologically, but I, I want to talk about it just for a few moments in terms of actual application to you. Why is Jesus' humanity so important? Because it makes Jesus one of us. There's so many people who don't receive the Lord because they don't get this. They think that, that God is far away, somewhere on the other side of the galaxies, and He doesn't get us. He doesn't connect to us. He doesn't know us. Uh, atheists don't believe He's there. Agnostics believe He's there, but He just left us to fight it out for ourselves on the planet. And nothing could be further from the scriptural truth. In fact, just because of time, let me pick three areas where Jesus gets you and knows you. First of all, He knows you so He can identify with you. Jesus left heaven. He came to this earth. But when He showed up on earth, He didn't show up a full-grown person. He came to the earth into the same way that you came to the earth. He was born of a woman. He came out of His mother's womb. You see... When the Bible says he was human in every respect, it means it. He was born into this world the same way you were born into this world. He had a mom and a dad. And he came into this world. And He later he would have brothers and sisters. And uh, he, he He would go to school like you had to go to school. And he would have to do life like you had to do life. He knows you. We, we think of God as the... As the computerized other end of, you know, have you had to do this during the tax season? Have you had to call somebody to get some information? And you call about your account. You know, you got a credit card account and you call and and then the first person is not a person. The first person you get is not a person. And actually what's really bad is when the person who's not a person is nicer than the person you get after the person who's not a person. But the first thing they want to know is what? Your account number. And you give your account number. And then you got to give your social security number. And then they don't know you. So then they ask you what? Well, those security questions. Your mother's maiden name and the first car you drove and your dog's name and all these other security questions. Why do they have to ask all those? Because they don't know you. And so many people think that, that's what it's like approaching God. There's 7 billion people on the planet. He's really busy, and there's really serious prayer requests. I mean, there's war in the Middle East. He doesn't know me. He can't care about me. And the Bible says he knows you. He says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and they know my voice. And he says in John 10, and I laid down my life for them. He would go on to say he knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows everything about you. Did you know he knows more about you than you know about you? Because you've forgotten some things about you. He hasn't. He knows you. Secondly, he gets you. Now, let's be honest just for a moment. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise hands or anything. We're just going to be honest within ourselves. You're weird, aren't you? You're just a little You're a little different. You're, you're a little different than everybody else in your family. You're, there's some people in your life some of them you're related to some of your friends people you work with they don't get you maybe somebody's actually said to you i don't get you i don't understand you i want you to know this morning god gets you he understands you do you know god created all of us and there's not two of us in this room that look alike he loves your uniqueness he loves the things that make you individually you. Did you know Jesus was unique? Do you know because of his uniqueness, he was rejected, he was maligned, he was marginalized, he was alienated? His own brothers hated him. They, no, his brothers didn't become believers until after the resurrection. His brother said to him on one occasion, knowing that if he went to Jerusalem, because he was hated by the Sanhedrin there, he would be killed. His brother said, knowing he would be killed if he went to Jerusalem, hey, why don't you go to Jerusalem and show everybody you're the Messiah there? That's his own family. They didn't get him. So when people don't get you, I want you to know Jesus gets you. He created you. He created you in that, that little weirdness that's yours that uniqueness that's yours. He knows you. He gets you. And thirdly, he can help you because he's been there. You see that verse 18 again, the last verse of the chapter? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The Bible is full of this word help. Back in verse 16, it says he he, he doesn't die for angels to help them, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So many of you are here, and you're fighting the struggles of the flesh in your own strength. You're you're fighting those addictions, the addiction to food, the addiction to spending, the addiction to porn, the addiction to tobacco, the addiction to drugs, the addiction to alcohol, the addictions that you have. You're fighting them. You're fighting them in your own strength. And Jesus is standing right there, ready to help you, if you'll just turn to him. He literally says, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody opens the door, I will come in, and I'll be right there with him. He says, whoever seeks me will find me. He just says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Psalm 50, 51, he says, call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. That's a promise for you. And here we are. We have all kinds of troubled days. Call on me in the day of the trouble. He's waiting to help you. How can he do that? He knows exactly what it's like to be tempted. You suffered that way, just like you're suffering. And he did it so that he can mediate. He can be your high priest. He can be merciful to you. Now, in this passage that's all about the humanity of Jesus, there's a reminder. And the reminder comes halfway through verse 8. The first part of verse 8, quoting from the Old Testament, everything is in subjection to him. The the commentary that the writer of Hebrews writes is, now, what he meant by putting everything in subjection to him, he's talking about what David meant in the Old Testament, is he left nothing outside of his control. Now, if that confuses you, this is the way that I would say it in the common vernacular. Everything means everything. God put everything in subjection to Jesus. Not Not almost everything. See, that's the way we act, don't we? We act like, oh, but my addiction, I'll I'll have to do that myself. No. Everything is in subjection to Christ. If you'll give that to him, he can win for you. Everything. You say, well, everything but Trump. He's a wild card, right? No. Everything. Everything means everything. So then you ask, well, then why isn't everything in subjection to him now? Because he really speaks to that. He says, at the present... We don't yet see everything. We don't yet see everything in subjection to Him. So we want to know why isn't everything in subjection to Him now? The answer is because you and I live between the no longer and the not yet. We no longer live under the law, but we're not yet in heaven. We no longer have condemnation. To those that are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation, there's no guilt but I haven't yet arrived in my new home. I no longer have to walk in darkness, but I'm not yet in the glory of God. We live between the no longer and the not yet. You should do that sometimes the next time somebody says, where do you live? You know, imagine you're flying through the Denver airport. Guy says, where do you live? Normally you would say, Montana. What if you just said, I live between the no longer and the not yet? Might open up a conversation. And this is, the, this is our problem, isn't it? We yearn for the not yet. I long to be in heaven. This is what John the Apostle says when he gets to the very last, of the end of the revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want him to come now. Our citizenship's not on earth. We don't belong here. The earth is depraved and sinful, and we just hate it. And it gets all over us. And sometimes we give into temptation, and we hate that, and we run back for forgiveness. And when we get the forgiveness, we go, God, why don't, you just, why don't you just come now? Why are we waiting for your coming? Why don't you just show yourself as God and Lord and King? We want that now. And the answer to that is not in Hebrews 2, but it is in Second Peter 3. Just flip over with me, and this is where we're going to finish up this morning. It's really easy to find. If you found Hebrews, go to the back of your Bible. You've got to go past James and 1 Peter. If you get to 1 John, you've gone too far. Find 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter is going to answer the question, why hasn't Jesus come? Why isn't he here now? We just wish it would happen. The moment you give your life to the Lord, you just wish Jesus would come and you could go straight to heaven. Why doesn't he? Second Peter chapter 3, we begin in verse 8. Peter says, Now the first thing that we fail to do is we fail to overlook this one fact. Don't overlook this one fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. You and I, we can't, we can't even think outside of time. We are created to time, and we're subject to time. We're so subject to time that on the Monday after we we go forward in daylight savings time, there are 25% more heart attacks because we move the time ahead one hour. That's how subject to time we are. We're always thinking about time. This morning, I woke up. It was still dark outside. It was rainy and dark. So I looked at my phone. It was t- my phone. My, my, what do you call that? A clock. I looked at my clock, and I was like, oh, it's time to get up. But it's not. It's then I realized it was, it was winter again in Montana. See, we're always thinking about time. So we want to know, isn't it time for God to come? Peter writes to us and he says, God's not subject to time. God created time. God is timeless. He goes into eternity past, eternity future. A day with the Lord is like a thousand days, uh, years and a thousand years like a day. He said, Well, that's still not an answer, so he gives us verse 9. The Lord is not slow. Because, see, we think he's slow because of time. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, or as some would count time. But he's patient towards you. Say amen. Isn't it good that God's patient? Not wishing that anyone should perish that all should reach repentance. So that thing I just talked about, where you give your life to the Lord, as soon as you give your life to the Lord, you go, I wish Jesus would come. If Jesus would have come as soon as I have given my life to the Lord, then a bunch of you, you weren't saved yet. You would have given your life to the Lord. And if he had come at that moment, you'd have been lost. So why does Jesus delay his coming? The Scripture says in 2 Peter Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. He knows you. He gets you. He understands you. He died for you. He shed his blood that through his grace you might have eternal life. And he waits now with open arms for you to say, Lord, here I am. Take me. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning and just for maybe the first time the light kind of went on? Is it possible that you've never given your life to Christ? You can do that today. You could pray a simple prayer. It would go something like this. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I know that's why you died. I understand that why, that's why you went to the cross. And I'm asking you to be my Lord and Savior, my boss. And as much as I know how, from this day forward, I'll live for you. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, in the sincerity of your heart, with real faith, he saved you. Maybe you're here this morning, you've already prayed that prayer, but your problem is one of those addictions I talked about. It's the same thing, it's just believing God's word. Psalm 50, 15 says, Call on me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you will glorify me. So, if you're in trouble this morning, just call on Him. Ask Him. Ask Him to deliver you. Ask Him to do what's necessary to change you, remake you, to change your wants and make you like Christ. Maybe you've got an area of your life I don't know anything about, but you know the Holy Spirit of God was speaking to you this morning. You felt it, you heard it. Won't you say yes to Him? Do you need God in your marriage? You need God with your kids. You need God in that relationship with your parents, with your boss. Will you ask the Lord to do that for you today? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, I'll come in. He's waiting to do that for you. Father, this morning you've seen our hearts. You know everything about us. We choose to trust in you this morning. Some for the very first time for salvation. Some are rededicating themselves to you some need to win over that trouble in their lives some it's a relationship problem this morning I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring peace and comfort that he would change us and remake us and remold us to the image of your son Father that today would be a day of victory and as we look towards the cross this week towards Good Friday as we look towards Easter next Sunday in the empty tomb we pray that this would be a week of victory and it would start today for us Father, do this for us, is the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Here's how Peter finishes his book in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, Therefore, loved ones, since you are waiting for the coming of Christ, since you're waiting for these things to happen, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, And to be at peace. And to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. In verse 18 he says, Now grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's to him be glory both today, now, and to the day of eternity. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Emanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emanuel, please visit us online at www.myemanuel.net.